Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand you remember making an impact on you as a young girl? I um, I have been a Nike girl my entire life. It's a brand that always has a point of view. And you might not always agree with the point of view because sometimes they can get a little political, but I just admire them for having one and having this willingness to stand behind whatever their opinion is, because I preach to everybody that they should have a voice. And I feel like they do. Again, whether you agree with it or not is almost not my point, but that they have one. And then the second thing is, I love that they celebrate the advancement of sport. Right. I love their mission. Their mission, right, is, is that everybody is an athlete and mm-hmm. they, they want to bring innovation and inspiration to everybody. And one one ad or video that always stays with me is from a few years ago was when Abby Wambach um, retired and they did a piece and it was called Forget Me. And the whole idea of it was that she wants you to forget her because it means that the sport and the game has innovated and evolved beyond her. And that once you forget her, Great that insight. means that it has it has advanced and it is moving forward. And I think that Nike over the years, those are the messages that they put out there, whether it's around an athlete or a sport or a team. And I love that. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it. And the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it. But the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today in the CMO podcast is Devika Mathrani, the chief marketing and communications officer for New York Presbyterian Hospital, a large and leading edge healthcare system. 2,600 beds, 6,500 physicians, affiliations with Cornell and Columbia Medical Schools, about 20,000 employees, and I love this, they deliver about 15,000 babies a year. New York Presbyterian is one of the oldest institutions in America. It traces its roots to 1771, when King George III signed a royal charter to establish the hospital. My guest, Davika, had a bright future in financial services. She had big jobs across 22 years at American Express, City, and Wells Fargo before making a big career switch about a year ago. She joined New York Presbyterian as CMO and Chief Communications Officer in July 2021. This is my conversation with Davika Mathrani. Davika, welcome to the CMO Podcast. You are the chief marketing and chief communication officer at the hospital where you were born. Do I have that right? You do. You do indeed. Your family must be very proud. It is. I've come full circle, I tell people. (laughs) So you've been in this role about 10 months and what a career change, right? You were about 20 years in financial services for three power brands, Amex, Citi, and Wells Fargo. So tell us that story. Why, after this great career in financial services, you have, I don't know, an aha moment and you jumped to this really, really large and important hospital system. So tell us a bit about what compelled you to change. 
Yes. And I have to say, if you asked me 10 years before whether I would ever have seen myself making a change like that, I never would have predicted it at all. I am. You're right. I did. I spent about um, 22 years in consumer banking at the incredible brands that you mentioned. And what I learned along my journey uh, was that what I really enjoyed was sort of the the challenge and the and the opportunity to help build something that was struggling in many cases. So if you think about when I was at American Express, it was very much about making sort of great greater. Amex is always one of the best in its categories. And then after 12 and a half years, I decided to go to Citi. And what I found at Citi, I joined them right after the financial crisis. So many people thought I was absolutely crazy, including my parents who thought, what is she doing? But what I loved about that opportunity was saying, how do you get this business that there's this organization that once used to be known for innovation and being breakthrough in its category, how do you sort of bring it back to greatness? And I learned how much I enjoyed that challenge. So then you fast forward six years and I decided to make a move to Wells Fargo, another move that a lot of people were very surprised about because Wells in 2016 had gone through a lot of crisis, reputation crisis related to sales practice. And I joined them in 2018 to help them rebuild. But what I learned along that journey and each of those roles, I sort of expanded my aperture. I went from being sort of a credit card gal to then being all about credit cards and deposits. And then I went to be about being about kind of consumer banking more broadly was that I loved that balance of, of learning and giving. I loved that, that combination that I always felt I was a student. I always felt like I was learning. And that was definitely an aha moment for me to make that discovery about myself. Because I think when I think about early years in my career, I probably felt much more comfortable in my comfort zone, probably felt like things that were familiar and in my control was what I enjoyed. But as I sort of grew in my leadership and in what energized me, it was, it was that combination of learning, kind of giving and receiving. And it was that combination of, of being sort of a student. So after 22 years, I sort of said to myself, I don't want to take a job that's going to be a playbook. I don't want to take everything I've learned and just apply it to yet another bank. But I love the function of what I do. I love building brands. I love driving revenue. I love engaging customers. I love thinking about customer experience. So I said to different folks that were working with me to think through this challenge, and I said, you know, what are some of those areas? I looked at technology, I looked at real estate, I looked at retail, I looked at healthcare. And what I found about healthcare is is that it is this incredible industry that is in this complete state of change and transformation. And in many ways, it's becoming so much more commercial. It's becoming actually more similar to financial services than it used to be 10, 15 years ago. So to me, it was this amazing combination of taking the skills that I had, applying it in the space of transformation, the space of growth. It was in the middle of COVID. So of course, there was also crisis happening around it. And I seem to be a little bit of a storm chaser, I discovered about myself. And it lets me be sort of a part-time marketing executive and a part-time, I feel like, med student during the day. So I get that challenge of sort of giving and receiving. I get that challenge of sort of giving and learning, which to me was was just an incredible opportunity. Who helped you make that decision? You said you bounced some ideas off some people in retail and, you know, in healthcare. So how did you who helped you with that? You know, I've definitely had mentors and sponsors in my life. And one of them um, is a is a gentleman that I worked with both at American Express and at City and I had said to him a few months before that, I was like, you know, I was like, I just feel like I don't wake up every day feeling like I learned something at the end of the day. Mm. He's like, David, you need to make a change. He's like, that's a sign. And he said, 
because one thing I've always, uh, something I've always stayed true to in my career is I never want to be bored. I think there's actually nothing worse for a leader than to feel like they're bored. I feel like you just don't get the best of somebody when they feel that way. And he said to me, uh, we were sitting over cocktails. I remember in Midtown, New York, it was one of the last cocktails I feel like I had before COVID. And he said to me, he's like, I feel like you're on that brink of boredom. And I feel like you're beginning Mm -hmm. to say you need that change. And so he really, really encouraged me to take that risk. And he said, listen, he said, you're at a point in your life where you can take that kind of risk, whether it be financial risk, whether it be personal risk. And he said, so start exploring and open your aperture. And he, he encouraged me at that time to also think about, is it large corporation? Is it small corporation? Would I take my experiences and would I apply it to a smaller, less mature company? And, um, and that was one person who was, was very, very much, I think, in, in my corner and played a role. The other thing is my family and my, my parents. You know, I think that along the years, I, I come from a corporate household. Um, my, father, my father was in banking. And one of the things that I think my parents also learned about me over the years was that they realized that I did like to chase the challenge. And they said they realized that I think they, they wouldn't have said that about me, I don't think when I was in the early years of my career either. But they saw they said, look, David, how you've been energized as you've chased you, you went to city after financial crisis, you went to Wells Fargo after reputation crisis. And here is an industry in transformation and in many ways in crisis, like you're ready for that leap, right? You're ready to take your skills and challenge yourself in a new way. And so they were very, very encouraging my sister, especially my sister was just she just felt like, you know, my sister believes in me, I think, more than anybody I know. And she had so much heart for me sort of taking that kind of risk. And um, so they played a very, very big role, I'd say, in, in, in my decision, both mentors and family. Is your sister in, in business or is she in a different field? She is not. My sister and I are so similar in many, many ways, but she is actually a stay-at-home mom in Florida um, mm. with very grown-up children now. So she's thinking about what her next adventure is going to be. We always say we live vicariously through each other. Um, her day and my that. day are so different, but yet we have so much love and appreciation for each other's lives. <laughs> what would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMO succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. So you were, you like to be in your comfort zone way back when you were at Amex, and now you're a storm chaser. So <laughs> what, what, what happened? Was it an increase in confidence? Because I think when you grow in confidence, you're much more comfortable in very, very unstable situations. I found that about myself anyway, and I became much more comfortable. And actually, I really like that as well. So what happened with you to go from comfort zone to storm chaser? You know, I think some of it definitely is confidence. And I think as you get more comfortable and confident in your own skin and your own abilities, I think you you definitely kind of you're willing to take on and entertain things that you never would have thought about before. But it's funny, I was sort of ground that answer in in almost maybe what I view as some of like early career failures, which is I think earlier in my career, I didn't push the boundaries hard enough. I think that, you know, when you, especially when you live in the world of marketing and sales, right, if you're winning too often and if everything works, then that means you're actually not pushing hard enough. And I, and at the time in those years, I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't feel that. I thought, oh my God, it's wonderful that 95% of what, what I do is a success and you, and you celebrate that. 
And I think at a certain point in my career, I sort of realized that I, you need to push the boundaries more, you need to fail more often, and you grow more when you fail than actually when you win. And when, you know, every test you do is perfect, like, what did you learn from that? Um, and I think that also gave me this sense, and I applied that same learning almost to my career and saying, I need to take bigger risk, I need to take more of a leap, because I'm going to challenge myself, and I'm going to learn more, and I'm going to grow more. And I sort of trusted myself more to do that. Um, the other thing I realized was, you know, while my career has always been in, in marketing and communications capacity, I really do think of myself as more of a general manager um, who happens to have a functional skill in marketing. And I give a tremendous amount of credit, by the way, of that to American Express, because I think in my early career, they really do force you to think about everything from every angle and not just the one seat that you sit in. And so I also said to myself, what do, sort of, what do I want to do when I grow up? And I think a little bit about general management roles. And I say, I don't want to be this one trick pony who couldn't show that she could, you know, put on another hat or that she could try something really different. Um, I needed, I needed to prove both to myself and I feel like to folks around me that I could do that. It sounds a little immature when you say it that way. Um, but I felt like I, I needed to, I needed to know that I could do it. I could put myself in a new environment, different cultures, different type of brilliance around you and um and be able to succeed and fail <laughs> yeah no for sure for sure so you're fairly new still in this role but it is your fourth job i think with cmo in the title mm -hmm. so how is this role different and how is it similar to your cmo roles at city and wells fargo you know, this is, um, I would say it's its less defined. I stepped into a role where I am helping to define sort of what CMO is and the role that CMO can play in healthcare and in healthcare institutions. You know, it, at the bank, CMOs have been around a long time. I think largely people understand sort of the contribution they bring and the value that they provide. And, and the role has gotten stretched over time, right? It gets into customer experience and customer journeys and, and chief digital officer and customer officer. All of that is completely new in healthcare. You know, five, 10 years ago in healthcare, there really wasn't a lot of marketing. Periodically, you'd see some sponsorship and you'd see some names on buildings and you'd see some billboards and you'd sometimes see some beauty pictures of, you know, beauty shots of doctors in, you know, airplane back of seat magazines. But marketing was really, it, people chose their doctors and they chose the medical institutions that they went to based on a referral from a family member or based on a referral from a doctor consumers weren't as actively involved in their healthcare choices. That is all new for healthcare, right? And part of that is because all of those same things that are available in, in financial services are now available in healthcare. You can, you can sit on your mobile device and doom scroll your way into learning every fact about every doctor, and you can read ratings and reviews, and you can go to aggregator sites like health grades, and you can compare across. And so all, because all of that is new, marketing is newer in the healthcare space because people are saying there is this commercial marketplace that's out there. We have to work a lot harder for it. Consumers are not just taking our word for it anymore. They're doing their own research. And so that's what is so different and beautiful about this job is that I'm helping to shape what marketing really means at New York Presbyterian. And, um, and, that, and that is extending, right? I started here eight, nine months ago, 10 months ago, and it was all about you know, traditional marketing and communications. And now I am talking about customer journeys. What's the app experience? What do we do with a patient after they leave us, after they check out? What does that experience feel like? 
And everyone's like, oh, yeah, that is marketing. That is marketing. That's another way to engage a patient. That's a way to engage a customer. The other thing is that I am, um, I felt like because this is an industry in change and because it's an institution that I think had an opportunity to sort of refresh itself in many ways coming out of COVID, I've had sort of the opportunity to take a very, very fresh lens um, to the institution and our marketing and our brand particularly. Whereas I think with some of the more established um, banks, some of that degrees of freedom wasn't as wide. Mm -hmm. Now, you walked into a job which you're defining. So that's a challenge. And that would be intimidating to a lot of people. How do you how did you go about defining it? Obviously, they felt there was a need. They brought you in at a senior level uh, to be the chief marketing officer and chief communications officer. And it's evolved, it sounds like, a lot in 10 months. So take us through your process, I'm sure, with your peers and your, and your boss to define this role. Tell us that story. So much of it has been honestly listening and understanding where are their pockets of opportunity whether or not it was an opportunity for us to rethink the brand, whether or not it's understanding how, how do we interact with patients? What types of patient communications do we have? What mediums do we use? And that made me realize, you know what, there's an opportunity for me to think about how do I digitize patient communications, right? Or thinking about the app experience as I talk to people about how do consumers interact with our digital tools? Like, what are they using them for? How often are they coming back to them? Are they purely transactional? Is there a way for them to be sort of wow moments? And I, as I listened and I learned and I heard from whether it be the physicians, whether it be administrators, whether it's my CIO partners in technology or the folks that are living and breathing patient experience every day, I have spent a lot of time just like listening to my peers and understanding and then being honest with myself and saying, like, listen, you can't you can't tackle everything on day one. And of course, I have this like and my notebook has like a long list of 100 things that I want to do, but really thinking about where where could I make the biggest impact most quickly? And that's sort of that's what I've been kind of forming and norming, I would say, over the last nine months. And then I sit down with my leader, who is incredibly, incredibly supportive and sees how much the industry is changing and says, you know what, we don't have this skill internally. You bring this experience from another industry that is more commercial, that is you know, unfortunately, financial services is very commoditized. And in many ways, healthcare is becoming that way in some angles. And is and so they're hungry and eager for me to bring that expertise. But so much of it has just been kind of collaborating and listening to my peers and then and then having to prioritize on where I could have um, the biggest impact. Can you share where you can have the biggest impact quickly of all the various things you can Put your personal time against? Absolutely. I mean, I think some of it would be the obvious places, which was when I stepped into the institution, one of the things that I did very, very quickly was the brand. What I found about the brand is, is that New York Presbyterian is a New York iconic institution, and it has had a brand positioning around this notion of being amazing for many, many years. And actually, its tagline used to be amazing things are happening here. But what I found was that original brand came into market at a time when the institution was much smaller. Now they are 11 hospitals, 200, doctor uh, 200 doctor's offices, many, many specialties. And we also have a commitment to things like health equity and other sort of um, important causes that we weren't focused on 10, 15 years ago. And the brand that we had just didn't allow us it didn't sort of give us the air cover and the permission to sort of expand our conversation in the marketplace. So that was one thing that I immediately saw as an opportunity and said, you know what, I think we can build on that idea of amazing, but we need to open the aperture. 
The other thing was that amazing was about us. It was about what we're doing that's amazing mm. and how we are amazing and how we're delivering amazing, which is all true. But ultimately, we're delivering that amazing so that our customers and our patients can be amazing and live amazing lives. And so we needed to bring consumers into that conversation more than we did before. So that was something that was an incredibly important part of, um, of the experience. The second part has been about being a voice and being, bringing a consistent voice of the customer to every conversation. How do, you know, I think so often, you know, we think about transactions, whether it's an app, whether it's a website experience, whether it's what the inpatient check-in experience is, or what the, what the outpatient experience is, or what that follow-up call is from the hospital to you. And I think sometimes people are so close to the medicine of it, or they're so close to the regulation around it, or they're so close to the requirements of what we need to do that there hasn't naturally been sort of a voice of customer. We don't have a chief customer officer in the same way. So that was an opportunity where I realized that I could bring that lens. And part of it is because I don't know some of those details as well as everybody else. I'm a complete newbie to healthcare. So I'm sort of not jaded by all the things you can and can't do. So I look at things from a very pure point of view and I bring that perspective. Um, the other thing is, is digital experiences. You know, it's um, one of the things about healthcare is, is that it is an industry that I think has been a little bit slower to move from kind of the analog environment to the digital environment. And how do you bring that mindset of don't benchmark yourself against other hospital institutions and other medical providers, but how do you benchmark yourself just about best in class? And what is what are those moments of truth that you have in those digital experiences that that we can shape and we can change? Right. How do you make the hospital in many ways, a part of people's daily lives. And that's very strange to people, right? People said to me when I first joined, first of all, even say, talking about patients versus customers. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I don't think of people as patients because patient to me means you're in the doctor's office, you're in the appointment or you're checked into the hospital. But I want somebody to be thinking about us and engaged with us, even when they're in living their daily lives happy and healthy. I want to know that that we are a top of mind brand for them as a customer 24 by 7. And so therefore, the other area of opportunity is how do you find ways to interact with patients and customers when they're not ill and when they're not sick, right? Consumers in the past used to think of a hospital of like where I go when I'm sick. And honestly, nobody ever wants to go there. But I want to be a brand and I, you know, our new brand positioning and our new promise is that as as your as you grow, the world of wellness grows around you. And so I think that was the other opportunity is what what's the content we need to be creating? How do you take the expertise of a hospital and our physicians and our amazing frontline workers and make it relevant to consumers every day who are focused on their preventative health and are focused on how do I avoid getting sick? How do I stay healthy? And that's a major change, I think, in conversation for particularly the hospital space. What sort of digital experiences did you use as benchmarks and inspiration for your colleagues at the hospital? You know, I say to people that there are um, there, there's different categories that I would say we've looked at. I think when you look at um, retail experiences and understanding what is easy checkout, what is one click mean? How easy can people find the simple transactions that they want to do? Because there are a lot of people that do come to our website and come to our apps and the, all they really want to do is pay their bill or they want to make an appointment. 
Um, but then I'm also thinking about other experiences, looking at even other healthcare providers. How do you think about like the Calm app? How do you think about um, Headspace? How do you think about other providers that are providing a niche, um, a very niche type of, of healthcare in the digital experience? How do you sort through all of the content that they have? How do they tee up content to you? What are they basing that targeting on? Those types of experiences have also been very helpful. And then also looking at where you have permission to expand. You know, one thing that I did learn in my in my uh, banking years was 25 years ago, even when I started my career, financial services was was much narrower of a of a category, right? When you you th- you were talking about deposit accounts and you were talking about credit cards and you were talking about reward points, but think about credit card companies today. Now people think about them as access points. They're they're your concierge, they're your access to dining, they're your access to unique experiences. They're, they're your access to travel. So I've also looked at some of those parallels in other industries that sort of gave themselves permission to have almost like line extensions on your business. Mm-hmm. How do I take, um, you know, a neurosurgeon who is thinking about, you know, ways in which to care for the brain every day, but take what they know and their expertise and make it relevant to one of our customers every day in their mission to stay healthy? How do I take that orthopedic surgeon and that orthopedic doctor and that cardiologist and say, you got this amazing expertise? How do I bring it to customers in a way that they can digest it every single day and and you're top of mind as a brand? What's been the most challenging part of this first year, this first nine, 10 months? You know, one thing I I say to people is if you're going to make a change like I did and you're going to pivot, you do need to be eyes wide open. Right. Sometimes you get to a place in your career where you sort of get very comfortable and your days are not quite as exhausting. I would say my days are exhausting because I am learning. I am sort of partially a pre-med student or a med student. Right. You're learning the you're you're learning sort of new patient insights all day long. Right. What makes a customer make a decision in healthcare? What's the journey that they're on? That is a learning experience for me right? Learning the dynamics of the hospital itself and understanding the specialties. We have 16 or 20 different service lines. I mean, in the beginning, I had to figure out what they all were. And I, as like, I felt like I was, it was like a game of operation for me. I was like figuring out all the body parts and how they all fit together, right? So you're, there's that learning part that is that you sometimes get out of that mode. You spend 22 years in one industry, you do realize that you stop learning every day and, and the yeah. learning your learning becomes more the 10%. And uh, suddenly I'm in a place where my learning is like my 60 and 70% of my day. So that, that's that been one thing. And then the other thing is also just learning the dynamics of the industry. And some of it is inherent to our organization. I mean, we are a tri-party organization. So New York Presbyterian includes um, two medical schools, um, Columbia University's medical school, as well as Wild Cornell Medicine. And so just understanding sort of that dynamic between navigating, you know, the relationship with the schools, the relationship with the hospital, the role of the doctors, the role of the nurses, that is um, that, you know, everybody walks around and gets it and knows it. And I come in cold from the outside in a senior position. And uh, in many ways, that is a challenge to learn. But in many ways, I think one of the things that's been a benefit for me, and many people have told me to hold on to it is hold on to that newness and hold on to not feeling constrained in your thinking because you worry about whether something is possible or not possible and whether you can bring people along for the ride or not. Like, just think about things very purely and what's optimal for the customer. And then we'll tell you what's possible and what's not, but don't let yourself be jaded up front. 
So that, I think, has been um, some of the early challenges in just onboarding to a new industry. What are you most happy about in your first 10 months? You know, I um, first of all, I feel so incredibly right about the decision that I made. And I and I did say to myself, I was like, I do feel like in six months, I'm either going to know that I made the perfect decision or I should just cut bait quickly and realize that it absolutely wasn't the right thing for me. So I think first and foremost, I just I absolutely love the decision. I wake up every single day inspired by the people I work with, by the brilliance I get a chance to work with and just making a meaningful impact in people's lives. I mean, being in healthcare is very, very mission-driven. I think of the work that I feel most proud of, um, and it goes back a little bit to what I said about taking risk early in my career probably wasn't my strong suit, but I did. I stepped into an organization that had a brand and a brand positioning that had been around for you know, 15 years, and I decided to sort of place a bet and say we needed to evolve that brand. And, you know, I started in the organization um, at the end of July. I had a conversation with my leader. I think it was the first week of August. And I said, you know, it's very clear to me that we need a refresh. Um, I decided to um, bring in a challenger agency. And um, I actually baked off the incumbent agency with, with a challenger agency I'd worked with. I gave them two weeks um, to pitch. Of course, it was the last two weeks of August. So they were hating me from that moment as, uh, as I was busting up, I feel like, summer vacations, which was, which was awful now in retrospect. And, um, and I made the decision to go with a new agency of record. And then by November, we actually relaunched the brand. And I feel so proud. So who was the agency, David? Who uh, was we, the agency? I brought in Havas, um, Havas, New oh, York. Sure. Yeah. Who I have worked with um, in, in many capacities yeah, um, across. So they are absolutely terrific. And what I appreciate about them is that they understand that I want to break the category of what sort of hospital advertising is and what hospital marketing is, but I still want to be recognizable in the category because it is a very serious topic. It is a topic that people are uncomfortable often talking about. It's often a very intimidating topic. And so there's certain things that you need to stay close in on. But I want to do it in a completely refreshed way. And Havas has just the creative and strategic um, power to do that with me. I have heard you say in another forum that the three most important skills in marketing are to learn to anticipate, to build trust, and to be consistent. Which of these three skills are on overdrive for you right now, Devika? Oh, absolutely trust. Um, and I say, and I say that in, in, in many capacity, I think when I think about my internal, um, relationships and being able to drive an agenda and being able to deliver an agenda, I can't do that alone. Um, there is, there is nothing that I do internally alone. And so building that trust and, and making sure that everybody understands that I'm challenging and I'm forcing the organization to think about things differently and particularly to look at things from a customer perspective in a different way. I, I can only do that if my peers trust me. Um, the other thing I'd say is that I do think that in healthcare, and I actually think this is a parallel with financial services, from customers' perspective, I would say trust is the absolute most critical currency that you have in healthcare. And so trust is, as I think about the relationships that I'm trying to build with our current and potentially future um, customers, building trust is so, so important. The other reason I'd say trust really matters is because when you build trust, you create benefit of the doubt. 
I mean, you, 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 you're given benefit of the doubt. And when you think about, think about leading through COVID, right? That was, nobody knew how to lead through COVID. And there were going to be missteps by everybody at some point, right? Maybe sharing information at the wrong time or not communicating something in a, in a press release or in a, in a press conference in the perfect way. And I think that the institutions, particularly in healthcare, that had trust, I think they were given more forgiveness by just the consumer population in general. And so trust right now is, is just the center of the universe. Um, and I do think, though, one of the ways in which you can build trust with people is if you are anticipating, right, anticipating their needs, anticipating where the market is going, anticipating the next question that they're going to have and what sort of inspires them, whether they're a peer, a colleague, a partner or a, or a customer. You come in at the senior level and you have a team and you're evolving your role. I'm sure you're evolving the role of your team while you are building trust. How are you doing that? You know, it's um, when I came into the organization, there was definitely a lot of um, anxiety, I would say, for my team for, for all the right reasons I can sort of understand. You know, first of all, marketing and communications didn't used to be together. And so it was the first time that marketing and comms was being brought together. So that in and of itself, I think, creates a sense of anxiety. Um, I think I was coming in from outside the industry. And so people didn't sort of know how to read that and sort of what to expect. Um, but my what I the biggest thing that I felt that I did was I was very open about my um, I was very open about my mission. I've been very open and I've communicated what my goals are. I've been very transparent about where I've had questions and where I have had um, concerns right from the beginning. I didn't let people wonder like what's on Davika's mind and you know, I, I don't sit in meetings with that like stoic face and people are sort of, oh, my God, she can't like, she can't, we can't read her. I think I immediately tried to sort of diffuse the stress by showing that I'm a very transparent leader and showing that I'm going to I'm going to show you my cards and I'm going to be very honest about my 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 questions, my perception. And I think that helped diffuse a lot of that stress that existed. The other thing also was in managing the talent. Right. You know, sometimes you have a new leader come in and, and, they, and they, they sort of create a reputation for themselves that they're just going to clean house and they assume everybody there has no experience. They're terrible. You know, that's why they brought me in. I have not taken that approach. I have had sort of a balance between um, bringing in some talent from the outside in order to close gaps, because, again, healthcare is changing. And so there was a lot of skills, particularly in certain areas, whether it be around business development and partnerships and digital that, that weren't as strong. And how do we bring that in? But also recognizing the incredible talent that existed within my team and sort of probing them on, on where the opportunities are and, and having that combination of promoting from within, expanding role, giving people a chance to do things they haven't done before. I think all of that has, has helped to diffuse the anxiety and also be, it's the, we have the early signs of a team culture. Um, I always say I'm a very different style leader. I mean, I, I send notes to what my team. What do you mean team. by early signs? What do you mean by early signs? Early signs. Like in the beginning, I remember it's like I'd walk into a room and I'd have marketing and comms sitting on two different sides of the fence. Mm. Or um, even in how we presented ourselves to our internal business partners. Let's say we were meeting with the cardiology team or we were meeting with the neuro chiefs or we're meeting with pediatrics. There would be a conversation about marketing. There'd be a conversation about comms. And people were sort of skeptical of it. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm like, you have to talk about paid and earned together. And, and by the way, if I can get more earned, I would give up those dollars of paid if I can, because earned media and earned reputation build is just incredible. 
And so now I'm beginning to see the members of my team thinking like that, right? If somebody is doing something in the paid space, they're immediately having a conversation with their comms partner and thinking, you know what, is there something we could be doing organically and social around the same time? Or the communications team saying, you know what, we've got this incredible patient story that we're writing an article about and we're planning to um, amplify. Let me go and talk to the to the marketing team and think about, is there a way that we could maybe integrate this into some of our search landing pages? So I'm beginning to see that that collaboration across the two and people thinking much more horizontally than they used to. And then also, I'm just seeing people get to know each other better. You know, I think that particularly coming out of COVID, uh, you know, it was a time when people had sort of forgotten the importance of knowing other people and how just having that relationship, you know, listen, sometimes breaking bread together can just, you know, just Mm -hmm. you can make magic happen in many ways. And so that's those are all the signs that I'm beginning to see in terms of just a different culture on, on the team. So let's put your learning to anticipate hat on for a moment. What do you anticipate to be the most important? marketing capability to strengthen, to build upon as you look at New York Presbyterian and healthcare marketing two, three years from now? You know, I think that um, part of my answer is based on because consumer expectations are changing. I think that in the past, I think that the battle was sometimes won purely on the basis of medicine. And it was purely on the basis of, you know, who's got what procedure and which doctor is the best. I think consumer expectations now is not just, is it the best doctor? And, you know, can that person, does, do they have the right solution? It's everything else that surrounds it. It's that it's the, it's not just bedside manner. It's saying, as I think about preparing for a procedure, how much are they going to communicate with me? How much are they going to explain to me? How much are they talking to me as a patient versus feeling like I'm a number and they're handing me some paper brochure of 10 things to do, you know? How much am I going to be able to have a conversation with somebody when I have questions along the way? What is that check-in experience going to feel like when I get to the hospital? Am I sitting there with a clipboard and 40 pieces of paper that I don't really understand and I'm signing my life away? Or is it done in a way in which it's, A, I can do it digitally, I can do it in advance, I can do it when I have the time. Is it, do I understand the words that they're using or is it lawyer speak written for lawyer speak? Right after I have my procedure, do I feel like there was follow up? Do I feel like I had somewhere to go when I had a question or I was nervous about something I was seeing and feeling? I think that the game is changing on how consumers are deciding their healthcare provider of choice. And it's not just about the medicine. I mean, one thing I would say is that because I, I have the, the joy and luck of working for an institution that truly is sort of world renowned, and we do, we have the best doctors, top doctors people are almost taking for granted that the doctor is going to be great, that the surgery is going to be good. So now they're evaluating on all of these other factors. And I think that's an area where healthcare has just underinvested. And so I think that's where the battle is going to become. Think about what people read about. When people go on to ZocDoc or people are reading ratings and reviews and star comments on a health grades website, what people are writing about is not whether the doctor performed the surgery really well. They're talking about what that experience was in their hospital room, what the facility was like, how much the nurse engaged with them, Mm -hmm. right? Did I sleep well in that hospital? You know, those are the types of things that are becoming the conversation. And I think two to three years from now, I think the institutions that are focusing on all of those other aspects, I think are going to win. I love that. Raising the standards, right? Yeah. Totally. Now, we talk a lot on this show, as you know, about brand purpose, 
and growing a brand through purpose activation. You've had experience in financial services with some purpose-driven companies, but now you're at New York Presbyterian. So talk about this concept of brand purpose at your institution. Is it talked about that way? Is it explicit? Is it implicit? How is it shared in this incredible ecosystem you work in with thousands of people? So tell us a bit about this concept of brand purpose and how it, what you've learned about that in healthcare at New York Presbyterian in your first 10 months. You know, so one thing I would say is that I do think that brand purpose is no longer uh, like something that just a special few need to have. I think being purposeful, being ethical, those are just expectations that consumers have. And I think it absolutely plays into where people choose to do business and who they choose to give their business to. It's no longer optional. And I think that 20 years ago, it was, as you thought about building reputation, it was like some people, oh, they were purpose driven. And those were like the 10%. One of the things about being in healthcare is, is that it's sort of inherent to healthcare is, is that it is, it's mission driven in its organic nature. Um, because the people that choose to be there and work there and choose professions and careers there by definition have chosen a path of taking care of people and communities. But where, where I find, um, it sort of plays itself out and where it, um, where it comes into conversation a lot internally is that we can have four people in a room who maybe don't agree on something. It could be something administrative. I don't know. We could be arguing about something small, big, whatever. But the thing that unifies everybody is what is best for the patient. And that sense of our purpose at the end of the day is to make sure that New Yorkers and people around the globe are sort of happy and healthy. That is where purpose comes up in discussion because that's sort of what grounds everybody. And everyone's like, what are we, what are we arguing about? This seems like ridiculous. Like we're having a debate about something not particularly important because at the end of the day, what really matters is like what is best for the patient. And I think that in healthcare, it is a very grounding, this idea of what our purpose is, is very grounding for the organization. I also think that, you know, you think about what healthcare has been through over the last two and a half years. These are people that have been on the front lines. They have seen mortality in ways in which we cannot even imagine. And in many ways, healthcare um, providers in some in some cases feel almost like almost like their country failed them. Right. You had doctors at one point and nurses at one point coming to work and there wasn't enough PPE for them to wear. And they were like rewashing, you know, non reusable masks at one point. And so you think about two years later, reminding them and those it's exhausting, they're tired, they're burnt out in many ways. But when you remind them of their purpose, and you remind them that they're here to take care of people that sort of like eases some of that stress, and it sort of eases that frustration that they have almost with their jobs. And so that's one thing that we're talking about a lot internally, is how do we relaunch that reminder internally to people? about what our purpose is and why we're all here. And um, because I think the industry just needs a little bit of that inspiration. How do you do that, Devika, with the kind of, I mean, it's hard in any organization. You have what, like 20,000 employees, two academic institutions, a large leadership team, a board of trustees that looks like a Wall Street Hall of Fame. (laughs) So, So how, what have you learned about kind of a shared culture with such a, a large and very diverse organization. You know, it is, um, it definitely is very, what, what you're learning is that everybody looks at things from a different angle, right? So often the board has a lot of conversation about the patient experience. And part of it is because 
Many of them are patients themselves, right? So they think about it from that lens. If you're a physician, you're thinking about it and saying, do I have access to the technology I need? What are my operating rooms like, right? They're understanding what they're looking at it from the lens of what's the funnel I have of getting the patients that I want to see? Do I have the right referral funnel? You think about the nurses and the nurses want to know that they're able to do because nurses, I mean, nurses are like just I feel like the unsung heroes of, of our industry, right? They want to know that they can take care of their patients effectively. They need the supplies. They need the tools. They need enough of them so that they feel like they can give the attention that they want to give and do it with humanity, right? That's the other thing is, is that humanity and it all does come back to the patient. It's just that everybody is looking at it from a different seat right? The, the doctor's thinking about it and saying, do I have access to the technology and the operating rooms and the, and the solutions that I need to care for the patient? The nurse is saying, you know, I can't, I can't work this floor with only three of us. I need six of us. Otherwise, I can't spend the time looking in the eyes of my patients and care for them with the care and humanity that I want to give. And then you think about the board members who are thinking about what is that pay? When somebody pulls up to the driveway and they're in a, an emergency situation, like they don't want to have to think about how to park their car. Like they just want someone to deal with that for them. You know, like what's that end to end patient experience? But what unifies everybody is the patient. But you have to acknowledge that people are looking at it mm -hmm. from very, very different lens. Right. And I and I think that that is often where the conversation goes. How do you get everybody on board with something? How do you influence all the parties? You know, whether it's a steering committee conversation or a governance conversation, you're trying to make a decision. It always comes back to the patient, but you have to recognize that each of the parties is looking at it from a very, very different perspective. I have a daughter who's an ICU nurse. She's going to love the last five minutes of this podcast. And, <laughs> and she's going to be a fan of yours, Devika. It's oh, a beautiful, beautiful statement you made about the nursing community. Hey, I want to move to the creative brief. This is going to be a really fun one. I discovered in my research that you learned from a coach that there are things that you can control, things you can influence, and things that concern you, but you cannot really influence them. Mm-hmm. And you wish you had internalized that earlier in your life. Why do you feel that way? Because, you know, I think that um, I think one of the contexts I know that I've, I've answered questions on this is sometimes early in your career, you spend so much time obsessing over that in that sphere of concern. And, and, you, and that's at the expense of spending time on the things that you can control and the things that you can influence. And I don't know whether that's just my personality, whether it's a little bit of like, I can be type A sometimes and like, you just don't want to let it go. But if you listen, there are only so many hours in the day, there's only so much bandwidth for things. And if you don't compartmentalize and acknowledge that there's certain things you just need to park sometimes doesn't mean you're going to ignore it forever. I feel like I just spun my wheels sometimes on things that were in the concern bucket when I should have been putting my energy and time into the influence bucket. And, um, and, and I wish I just learned that earlier. So I didn't waste so many hours in my, in the day of my early career. Um, cause I, I do feel like there, there, it takes a little while to learn that. It also takes a while, I think, to figure out what goes in each of those buckets. Right, like yeah. nobody gives you a list and says, Hey, by the way, these are the things in your sphere of concern. And these are the things in your sphere of influence. So it, it, it takes that, um, and that's, and that's sort of the unwritten stuff, right? It's like figuring out like what's in that influence bucket. It's not in my control, but I definitely have a voice in there. Um, that, that takes, that takes time to learn. What's the first brand you remember making an impact on you as a young girl? 
you know, it's interesting. It's probably the same brand um, to me that makes an impact in many ways on me now, which is which is Nike. I um, I have been a Nike girl my entire life. Um, from my days of being kind of a, a, a student athlete, I mind you, to being then, I don't know, sort of the gym goer. And now I'm actually a runner. I actually took up running in 2018. But I would say that the role that it played for me was very, very different. And this is going to sound very interesting. So when I was younger, I actually, I spent many years living abroad. And um, I spent um, some of my toddler years living in Brazil. And I spent my elementary school years living in Seoul, Korea. My father was a banker, so we were posted abroad as expats. And I remember in Korea, there was this area in Seoul, we were in Seoul called Itaewon. And Itaewon had like, it was basically filled with like knockoff stuff from the U.S., and Nike was like the American brand that you would see. There was like knockoff Nike sneakers everywhere. So it sort of played this role for me as like representing America when I was in when I was in Seoul and as a young child. And then as I got older, two of the things that stayed with me, one was it's a brand that always has a point of view. And you might not always agree with the point of view because sometimes they can get a little political, but I just admire them for having one. And having this willingness to stand behind whatever their opinion is, because I preach to everybody that they should have a voice. And I feel like they do. Again, whether you agree with it or not is almost not my point, but that they have one. And then the second thing is, I love that they celebrate the advancement of sport, right? I love their mission. Their mission, right, is, is that everybody is an athlete and mm -hmm. they, they want to bring innovation and inspiration to everybody. And one one ad or video that always stays with me is from a few years ago was when Abby Wambach um, retired and they did a piece and it was called Forget Me. And the whole idea of it was that she wants you to forget her because it means that the sport and the game has innovated and evolved beyond her. And that once you forget her, Great that insight. means that it has it has advanced and it is moving forward. And I think that Nike over the years, those are the messages that they put out there, whether it's around an athlete or a sport or a team. And I love that. Like, I think they're just very, very forward thinking. So from being like a, a third grader who went to Itaewon and, you know, Nike sneakers represented fake America to sort of them having a voice and then sort of celebrating advancement. Uh, it's a brand that just means a lot to me. Who has been your most influential business mentor in your life? Um, my, uh, I would say the leader who I worked for, um, both when I was at American Express and then at City, a gentleman named Judd Linville, who was a real sponsor for me in my career. And I, he was somebody who he created opportunity for me that I never would have thought about. There were roles that I took that, you know, I, that in the, in the moment I was like, why would I take that job? Like, I don't understand. Or why would you add that to my plate? Like, that's not that doesn't seem like it's the right thing for my resume. And he would always say to me, trust me, like there's a skill that I'm that you're going to get. Like, as an example, at one point in my career, I managed statement capabilities for American Express. And I thought to myself, I'm a marketer, like, what am I doing a capabilities job? But what it taught me was technology. And it taught me how to interact with business architects and how to ask the right technology questions. And even today in my career, I feel smarter for it because I can interact with CTO teams just more informed on how to have that conversation. Um, and then he was also the leader that um, he went over to City and he said to me, you know, he's like, I want you to be on my leadership team. And he's like, let's work together to figure out what the right role is for you. 
And that was like torture, by the way, for one year because he couldn't, you know, move anybody for a year because of non-solicits and non-competes. And so for one year, I literally tortured myself about this decision. Um, but I, he was such an important leader in my life in sort of taking a bet on me when I was at, even when I was at city, I was managing marketing for the U S credit card business. And at one point he actually added to my plate, um, digital acquisition for the globe and thinking about the ad tech martech stack sort of on a think global act local basis. I mean, at the moment, I, I think my initial reaction was not particularly positive because it just felt like the world was going to come down on me having both a U.S. and global job. And, uh, but it was incredible. It was, it allowed me to flex muscles in my brain that I just, they were new muscles. And, um, and I, and it also made me realize that I can stretch myself like a ba- like a rubber band in a way I didn't realize that I could. Fantastic mentorship story. Really great. Yeah. Okay. What's the one question that you thought I would ask that I have not asked? Uh, I guess maybe I was, I thought maybe you asked me about influential folks in my life, but I, but you asked me the business question. Okay. We'll end with that one. Most influential person or people in your life. You know, I, so I mentioned earlier, family to me is incredibly, um, plays an incredible role in my life. But what I wanted to share was sort of why, which is there are two things that I learned a lot from one is I mentioned earlier, I moved around a lot as a child. And so when you, when you, when you relocate, the one consistent thing that you have is your family, right? And so you're starting a new school and you're trying to make new friends, but the one consistent thing, your blankie is your family. And so I think that created a very tight relationship. But the other thing that it taught me is sort of the dynamic with my parents. My parents are this perfect, amazing couple. All I always say, they know all of my friends. I often think that my friends are friends with me to get to my parents because they're much cooler than I am. But they're so different from each other. You know, they have different types of passion areas. They have different types of style. They have different interests. And I feel like I've taken seeing them operate as this amazing parents and parental unit and couple. And I've applied that in my work life because it 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 taught me at a very, very young age to surround yourself with people that are different from you and people that will challenge you and push you out of your comfort zone opposed to surrounding yourself with people that are just like you. And, um, you know, people always say that in the work world, but I think sometimes you take 10, 15 years to learn that. I had the joy of sort of learning that from my family very, very early. And that, I think, has been um, very, very influential for me. That's such a good story. You know, we have grown children, but we are really close with uh, my wife and I are married a long time and we're very different and we're very close to our kids' friends. And it has made our life so much richer for all kinds of reasons. Yeah. So I love that story. That's a nice little lesson to end on. Yes. Yes. David, I love the thank fact you. that you're close with your kids' friends. It's. Uh, oh it, yeah. No, it's it's the best. It it's is the best. We go to a lot of weddings. Let me put yeah. it that way, <laughs> which is a good sign. Devika, thank you for this just wonderful conversation on so many levels. And I wish you all the best. You're in a great job for you. You're full of joy. You're full of optimism and energy. So you seem like you are having the time of your life. I am. I absolutely am. I I, I feel honored um, to be in this role. And I absolutely love it. To tell the stories um, of this institution, of its brilliance, its patient stories is truly an honor. Thank you. That was my conversation with Devika Mathrani. There are a lot of takeaways from this one, but here are the top three to apply to your business brand and life. The first one, be a lifelong learner. Always be a student. Devika does this beautifully. She changed categories to go to healthcare because she wanted to shake herself up and learn more. 
She teaches so she can learn what the newer generation is thinking about, and she surrounds herself constantly with people who are different from her. Second takeaway, the way to build trust for Davika, and I think for many of us, is to be a transparent leader, to talk with people, to share with them what's on your mind, not hold back, be very honest, communicate frequently. This is how Davika has built trust quickly in only 10 months coming in from the outside in a senior role at New York Presbyterian. Third takeaway, never ever be bored. If you are bored, it's a strong signal you need to move on you need to change things up. Davika felt a bit bored in financial services. A mentor of hers said to her, if you're feeling bored, you really must shake it up. You must change. You must move on. And that led to her going to New York Presbyterian and being, I think, the happiest she's ever been in her career. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.